breaker one, breaker one might be crazy, but I ain't dumb. Crazy cooter coming at you. Hey, fast line, fast track. Y'all got your ears on out there? Get the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. It's great to have you with us. On this week's episode, we're talking about the opioid crisis in rural America with Ray Atkinson of the American Farm Bureau Federation and Illinois farmer Connie Guyor. We hear about renewed efforts by the dairy industry to push for stricter labeling for certain non-dairy products. And the American Farm Bureau Federation takes another step in its campaign for rural broadband expansion. Jesse Allen talks grain market volatility in this week's Market Talk report. And the hot rod farmer Ray Bohax talks oil smoke in this week's Bushels and Scents. Finally, we feature the music of up-and-coming country music star Allison Elena. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, opioid abuse on the farm is one of those issues we try to keep front and center here on the show. And this week, I wanted to bring the topic back around and share with you a discussion held a while back with the National Association of Farm Broadcasters, moderated by Kara Hart with the Red River Farm Network, and featuring Ray Atkinson, the Director of Communications with the American Farm Bureau Federation, which has been very active in opioid abuse education and prevention, and Connie Guyor, co-owner along with her husband John of Guyor Farms in Monticello, Illinois, and the founder of Marissa's Purpose Faith, Hope, and Love Charity, which she founded after losing her daughter Marissa McDuff in 2016 to an accidental fentanyl overdose. Well, uh, to get us started here, uh, Connie, maybe share a little bit more of your story. Tell us how you got to where you're at today. So Marissa was raised in a very healthy environment, and she was also involved in our church charities causes. She loved animals. She loved um creating new creations. She loved to bake and cook. And she was a very caring and daring and adventurous person. She had a horse named Blake and she loved to ride. She did 4-H. She would barrel race and she took first place uh, at the rodeo one year. She was a really strong swimmer and she would, um, she was involved in so many clubs and sports. Marissa was a student from Monticello High School, and it was her freshman year. At the age of 14, Marissa was diagnosed with juvenile diabetes. That was the same year that we had to put her horse down, which was a very difficult time for her. Um, She started to develop depression, and um, I noticed that she started to change her friends, and I could see a change in her behavior. And then she became more depressed. And then Marissa began smoking cigarettes and um, drinking alcohol and trying to fit in with a different crowd that she normally didn't um, hang around with. And the alcohol and the diabetes didn't mix. So from there, she started to explore with marijuana and cocaine. And... um, When she was 16, she had threatened us that she was going to drop out of school when she turned 17 
because she felt like school was a waste of time. So my husband and I had to make a very, very difficult decision. And we decided to send her to a private school. Uh, this private school we sent her to was in Arizona and it was an all girls school. It was very therapeutic for her and she excelled like crazy. She uh, was a straight A student and she got all straight A's. She graduated a year early from high school because she just had that will. Uh, this school was very therapeutic because they incorporated therapy to help them find themselves and also to give them the confidence and um, understand what they're going through. You know, different kids had different varieties of reasons for being there. And it was very helpful. Uh, when Marissa came home from school, she looked at me and she said, mom, I figured out my purpose. And I was like, wow, that's great. Cause I'm still working on mine. And she said, mom, my purpose was, I was put on this earth to help people. And I was like, wow, that's great. Because so many kids struggle with diabetes and you would be great helping kids get through this. And she's like, no, mom, this is going to be way bigger. So who would have ever thought it would have turned into this. Um, when Marissa started uh, college, she was a year ahead of her peers and um, she was doing great. But the group of friends that she found as she was going to college turned into a disaster because she was out one night with a gentleman that I've never even met, but she overdosed in his car while using um, while using cocaine that was laced with fentanyl. And he did take her to the hospital to, all he did was drive through the parking lot. They've got him on film. And then he decided he wasn't going to go in. So he took her to a wooded area. He left her there, covered her, and she passed away on her own by herself there. When I got the call that she had passed away, I had no idea what she had passed away from because she had diabetes and they didn't have a toxicology report for 10 weeks. So once they told me that she passed away from overdose of cocaine fentanyl, I didn't even know what fentanyl was. So I had to do some research and Doing my research, I found out that fentanyl is actually 100 times stronger than heroin. And this is what they're lacing the street drugs with because it's a cheaper form of um, an opioid that they can put into like heroin or cocaine or even marijuana they're putting it into right now. And um, it's so cheap and it gets people so addicted and they don't actually measure it. So they just um, mix it in and um, it's a hundred times stronger than heroin. So that's why so many overdoses are happening. This is, this, is, this is why we're having such an abundance amount of overdoses is this fentanyl. It's a synthetic opioid. And um, to give you an example, uh, three or nine little granulars of like sugar could drop a grown man of fentanyl. 
So that's a very small amount. They're also using carfentanil, which um, is even stronger. It's an elephant tranquilizer. And they're putting this in street drugs. And kids and people don't realize that this is what they're getting. And unfortunately, those who are already addicted to opioids, they don't care because they just want to get their fix. They just need that to get through the day. They, they're not getting high from it anymore. So what I try to do now after learning all of this, um, the only thing I can do is uh, live Marissa's purpose for her. And <clears throat> that's education. Education, <clears throat> excuse me, give me a minute. So education is, I think the only way we're gonna get through this, um, education and prayer because um, people don't realize what's being put into these drugs. And now they're um, vaping, and vaping is going to be the new carrier for these drugs. This is going to be the new way that they're going to be able to use these drugs because they're already making uh, vape pods with marijuana in them, with uh, um, different types of drugs already in the pods. So they're already starting to do this. Um, the vaping is people can use it as a tool to um, help themselves cut back on cigarettes, I guess, if they're using it the proper way and if they are of age and they know what they're doing. But kids in schools and middle schools, 75% in high schools, 75% of kids are using vapes, 50% um, in middle schools. I mean, my daughter's in middle school, my youngest, and I brought a speaker through the Piatt County and Macon County and um, some parts of Champaign County, and he spoke to the kids about vaping. And I had these same kids come to Marissa's Purpose Race that I that I host every year. And they were like, thank you for bringing that speaker in because it really made a difference in my choice. Ray, um, thank you for being a part of this uh, session as well. I wondered if you could speak to uh, how you got connected with Connie and uh, what Farm Bureau is doing more on uh, taking a stance on opioids uh, here. Sure, thank you. Um... I think, you know, I wanted to say first off, Connie, thank you so much for being on, on here to, to let people hear your story. I mean, you, you said that there's the only two things we can really do is education and prayer. I totally agree. But I think the other one is just people like you telling their stories because we know that stigma is such a huge barrier to treatment and to even, you know, when people won't even talk about something that's going on that they know they have, you know, um, are struggling with. Uh, then it just contributes so much to the problem. And so it's really courageous of you to come forward and, and be willing to share your story and be willing to let other folks know, you know, it doesn't have to happen to you. And, and there's things that, you know, that you've been through that I know you don't want to see other folks go through. So thank you for that. Um, I, when we, we became aware of this, um, not, I won't say we became aware of this issue, but in 2017, we started working on this issue because we were hearing stories like Connie's and, and from families and, you know, farm families and rural families. And what we learned through all this is unfortunately that these stories are way too common um, and that people don't really have an understanding that 
you know, when you talk about opioid addiction, people think of heroin addicts in urban, you know, environment, city street or whatever. And actually in rural America, it's, it's a worsening problem and it's growing faster and has been growing faster in rural America than in, in urban, you know, in big cities um, for, for several years. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. And part, part of it is, I think, you know, the distance and the, and the availability of treatment and, and stigma and all these things. So, you know, we, we started hearing these things and um, we, so we started talking with uh, National Farmers Union uh, back in, in 2017 to see how could we really, what could we do? You know, we, it's such a huge problem that, that uh, you know, you just kind of don't know what to do. And um, at that point, so, um, and I think a lot of people were really interested to, to see that we were sitting down with American Farm Bureau, sitting down with National Farmers Union to talk about an issue like this because um, folks that, that know both organizations know that we aren't always aligned on policy. Um, and we felt this was bigger than, than either one of our organizations and it's bigger than policy. We decided we weren't gonna focus on policy. We we're gonna focus on, as Connie was talking about, education, uh, awareness, and trying to do something to address stigma. And so we sat down with Farmers Union in 2017 and we said, well, we know this is a huge problem. We know there's a lot of stigma. We know it's affecting farmers and rural communities in terrible ways, but we wanted to have some data to, to back that up. You know, we knew all these things anecdotally, but we wanted to know the scope of the problem. So we commissioned a, a national uh, morning consult research survey to just survey rural, uh, rural adults and farmers, you know, subset of rural adults, obviously, um, to find out the scope of the problem and what people's awareness was and what they thought were things that were contributing to the problem and what could help. And that's where I think a, a lot of people was very, um, it was very um, um, big in the news at that time. You heard the talking point that three and four farmers had been impacted by opioid abuse, either by knowing someone that um, had been impacted or they themselves had been impacted or a friend or a farm family member. And so that was a huge point to us. I mean, I don't think even, you know, like I said, we knew there was a big problem, but we didn't know how big. And we also asked, um, we asked people do you know? Do you think rural communities are being impacted as much as as um, as um, you know, urban areas? And folks really were unaware of that. They um, they said um, only 31% knew that um, that rural communities are impacted the most. And also about that same percentage, about a third, said that they believed that stigma was a big problem in their local community and that it was a barrier to to solving this problem. So we, um, ha having all that information, you know, quantifiable information, we, um, we started developing the Farm Town Strong campaign, working with National Farmers Union. And so on that, you know, we have a website there, um, farmtownstrong.org, and I'm sure you all know about. Um, and on there, we, so one of the things that we found early on is if, if you're having a crisis or your family member's having a crisis, and you go type uh, type in opioid treatment or, or opioid crisis help, whatever, you get like 800,000 results. And some of them are reputable and some of them are kind of 
you know, not so reputable. And so we thought what we need is really someplace people can go and just a very user-friendly, simple, not a thousand things to read, but three or four things to go for, for help. And so on that site, you know, there's a there's a um, overview of our research. There's, uh, for instance, there's a link to the SAMHSA uh, substance abuse substance abuse and mental health um, uh, administration treatment locator. So you can go in, say, if you live in Des Moines, Iowa, you put in your zip code, and it'll pop up all treatment for um, different kinds of things, whether it's um, medication assistant assisted treatment or um, counseling or whatever kind of thing you're looking for. There's information there on drug disposal, including home drug disposal, um, and um, and also on prevention. And I think that, that's what we're talking about right now. You know, this is why this is so important because, again, people are really unaware of um, the problem and the scope. And I think kind of people, because of stigma, think, well, it couldn't happen to me. It just won't happen. And they kind of put it aside and don't want to think about it. So prevention is a really important thing. And I will say, you know, we worked with uh, 4-H and FFA throughout you know, this campaign to get that message out to um, to youth because that's where it starts. If if kids understand, you know, the danger and understand that this is not just um, kind of parents being negative or whatever kids think, you know, that they understand that there's real real dangers here that, that you can't control. You know, I think that that's a real key to that. And um, they both both of those organizations did a lot to to helping um, you know kids understand. And and I'll also say that when kids get these messages, a lot of times the, the kids will take it back to their parents and their grandparents. You know, they'll say, hey, grandpa, did you know like having those um, those pills from your back surgery sitting in your medicine cabinet? You probably, that's probably a bad thing because, you know, if you don't need it, you should dispose of those drugs and there's safe disposal and things like that. Because for instance, we know that um, a lot of uh, opioid uh, overdoses, accidental and otherwise, are from the home medicine cabinet. So, you know, we, we've uh, we've done a lot of work. We're really proud of our work with um, with Farmers Union and uh, and Farm Town and our Farm Town Strong, and we're really proud of people like Connie that are stepping up to to tell their stories because we know it is not easy. Again, more information about opioid education and treatment can be found at farmtownstrong.org. Again, farmtownstrong.org. Chandler Equipment. For 51 years, Chandler Equipment has been manufacturing excellence. The finest quality in pull type and truck mount fertilizer lime spreaders and litter spreaders, fertilizer tenders, seed tenders, and litter conveyors. They also sell a full line of Raven Industries Precision Ag products. To find out more about the full Chandler product line or to find a Chandler Equipment dealer near you, visit ChandlerEquipment.net or give them a call at 800-243-3319. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, a few news items of note. The National Milk Producers Federation says the new Dairy Pride Act will ensure labeling integrity for dairy products. The legislation, recently introduced in the House and Senate, requires the Food and Drug Administration to enforce its own existing standards of identity on imitation dairy products. NMPF spokesperson Chris Galen says the bill would clear up the issue of consumer confusion. This is important legislation because it expresses the will of Congress that the Food and Drug Administration is not doing its job when it comes to enforcing existing standards that call for the accurate labeling of dairy foods 
or in this case, foods that purport to be dairy-like but are made from plants or seeds or beans or grains, and they don't have the same amount of nutrition that real dairy foods have, and that can lead to consumer confusion. In fact, there's plenty of evidence that that confusion is growing as we see more of these products in the marketplace. Years of inaction by the FDA has led to more consumer confusion, according to Galen, who says the legislation shows Congress wants action on the issue. As the FDA has spun its wheels on this issue the past several years, we've seen more and more of these fake dairy foods in the marketplace. And of course, we're also seeing them in the meat case as well with the imitation or plant-based products that call themselves meat. So unless the regulators step in and put an end to this, or at least try to clarify things like they should according to the existing standards, the problem is going to continue to get worse. Galen says that for decades, FDA regulations have set specific standards for labeling dairy products, but the FDA is not enforcing those standards. It's very clear that these products are supposed to be coming from a mammal made from the milk or cream of animals. So the problem is, is that people may go to the grocery store and say, oh, this is a milk. It's just like the other milk that I used to drink growing up, cow's milk, because it says it on the package. But what we found consistently is that these products are inconsistent and they don't measure up to the real amounts of protein and vitamins and minerals contained in every glass of real milk. And that's where this becomes not just a labeling spat, but it becomes a public health concern. And it's even caught the eye of medical and health groups like the American Academy of Pediatrics, who are voicing concerns that the amount of confusion in the marketplace could have negative effects on public health. President Joe Biden has yet to nominate an FDA commissioner. Once one is named, Galen says the issue hopefully will be discussed during the nominee's confirmation hearing. In addition to helping build support in the House and the Senate for the Dairy Pride Act legislation, we're also going to be looking to the FDA for action on this. And when there is a next FDA commissioner nominated, we hope to use the confirmation hearing to drive home the point that the FDA should not be able to pick and choose which regulations it enforces, that food labeling is just as important as any other function of the FDA, and they need to make this a priority in the future. You can learn more online at nmpf.org. One of the issues we like to keep front and center here on Fast Line Fast Track is rural broadband, and getting broadband developed throughout rural America is a priority for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Farm Bureau Federation Congressional Relations Director Emily Buckman says rural residents, along with farmers and ranchers, need access to broadband connections. We've heard the phrase multiple times, broadband is no longer a luxury, it's a necessity. And the pandemic made that even more evident as we had to shift to working remotely, children having to do homework from home, and then even having our doctor's appointment done via telehealth. Rural broadband is essential for modern agriculture, farmers and ranchers who grow food and to the quality of life of rural Americans. The American Connection Project, which includes Farm Bureau and is led by Land O'Lakes, just launched the American Connection Corps. This is a new pilot program which will connect young leaders to their hometowns and empower them to become a new class of community leaders focused on connectivity. For a period of two years, the American Connection Corps fellows will work to increase digital access in their communities by coordinating local partners to access federal and state resources for broadband access, as well as delivering digital literacy to those members of the community that may not even know how to utilize broadband. Rural community members can also help by using the FCC speed test app. The networking coverage and performance information gathered from the speed test data 
collected through this app will help to inform the FCC's effort to collect more accurate and granular broadband deployment data. It's been a major effort to have FCC update their coverage map to ensure that federal dollars spent on broadband deployment is accurately targeted to those communities most in need. And you can learn more about the broadband initiative at fb.org. And finally this week, the theme of this year's virtual Animal Agriculture Alliance Summit is Obstacles to Opportunities, with what organizers call a focus on overcoming obstacles for farm security. Emily Solis says the virtual panelists will touch on any unprecedented challenges that cropped up during last year's pandemic. Some of those include where we saw some of the challenges from the processing of meat products, and we saw some bare shelves earlier on in the pandemic. So we're kind of looking at those obstacles and trying to figure out how can we turn those obstacles into opportunities for the decades to come. Solis adds the panel will focus on tools farmers or producers can use at any operation of any size. She adds summit organizers Organizers want participants to walk away with the ability to overcome any obstacle. Just equipping them with whatever they need to feel confident moving forward and feel like they have um, the tools in their toolbox to really make the most of these obstacles and really turn these into opportunities. The virtual summit takes place May 5th and 6th. We want to thank Glenn Vaughan with Pacific Northwest Ag Network in Pasco, Washington for that audio. World Ag Expo Online is not just one week. We'll be here all year long with new information, seminars, links to exhibitors, and more. Mark your calendar to make sure you visit the show website every month. Want to get monthly reminders of updated news and information? Go to worldagexpo.org to sign up for the email newsletter. More than 600 online exhibitors coming from 48 states and 65 countries. Attendance is free for the online show throughout 2021. Just go to worldagexpo.org. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, there's still plenty of ups and downs in the grain market, and Jesse Allen is along to fill us in in this week's Market Talk update. Jesse. Well, thank you very much, Brent, for having me back for another episode of Fast Line Fast Track with this Market Talk update. Earlier this week, I talked with Matt Bennett of agmarket.net just about a lot of different factors playing into the volatility in the grain market right now. And I first asked Matt his thoughts on whether or not we've found a top or if there even is a top in sight in this grain market, despite the few corrections we've had and everything else, it just seems like there's not a top in sight. This is what Matt had to say. Yes, it's kind of the feeling I get, and it's for a couple of reasons. You know, when you look at the cash market, you know, whenever you look, for instance, at your spreads, the basis, you know, some of these basis levels, I mean, in my part of the world, one of the processors has been, you know, 40 over the July, uh, but you're hearing about pushes uh, for another 25, 30, 40 cents, depending on quantity. So uh, there's a huge push out there. Uh, beans, it's it's like corn on steroids. I mean, beans, you're, you're, you're in a dollar over pushes with the you know, a posted 40, 50 over basis. So, uh, you know, I think you got to watch the basis when basis is that strong and originators are, are in that much of a, a panic mode, if you will, to get cash bushels sourced, especially, uh, you know, during planting season, you know, you know that you're going to see that you get on past that though. And you're still seeing basis levels on past this spring that are pretty robust. You've got to ask yourself, why would this market be over just yet? Carryouts are super tight. Uh, we've got a May report that I don't know how you have a bearish May report with the information we know. Uh, we should have extremely tight new crop stocks, uh, both corn and beans, because they have to use those acreage uh, levels that they use for March uh, planting tensions. You're looking at seriously tight situation in May. And I don't think anybody wants to be short going into that. I don't think anybody wants to be short going into that. You are exactly right. And there's a lot of factors 
that are at play here. And I want to talk a little bit just about, you know, why we're seeing some of this volatility and why things are so amplified. And we know that there's expanded limits out there. Uh, That's going to get even wider on the corn side here uh, very soon. And and just all the volatility with with the funds and the specs and having the ability to have more contract positions and just the, the computers, the momentum trading. There's so many like new factors or expanded factors that are playing into this volatility, Matt. No doubt about it. There's a lot of money flowing around right now. And I think there's a lot of folks that a little bit concerned about what's going on uh, with, uh, you know, uh, the equities. I mean, stocks have been so good. People have made so much money. Uh, you know, I think there was a lot of folks that were that were concerned uh, with the changeover in presidency that you would see the Dow plummet. Uh, and it didn't. And, and I think the fact that it just keeps going, uh, some of those people are maybe starting to pull some of the money out and maybe go over to commodities. We're hearing about that quite a bit. And so, yeah, there's a lot of money flow here. Uh, long and short of it, though, for a, a, from a producer standpoint, it's pretty easy to get caught up in this. But I highly encourage anybody to take a look at what these new crop prices mean for you uh, from a situation of just a regular crop. What if I just have a regular crop? And you talk to producers across the corn belt. What are they going to tell you? Uh, best soil conditions I've planned in two years. I mean, we're hearing it over and over and over. And it's not going to be 100% of your viewer, uh, listeners, but I'll tell you what, it's going to be a good chunk of them. Illinois, Iowa, uh, there's a lot of folks that are just thrilled, even though it's been a little cold, don't get me wrong, but it's so dry that the planting conditions are just pretty much garden-like. Well, and that leads me to another question I'd like to pose to you. I've heard from some producers who are maybe a little worried about marketing too much new crop right now in the event that we stay dry. I I know that concern is out there as well here for the U.S. Midwest, and there's some folks that are just going, you know, I hate to market too much new crop and then not be able to deliver it. Uh, What would you say to that? What would you say to a good strategy? What would that be for marketing new crop right now? First of all, they're making an excellent point. You know, I was still in the grain business uh, back in 2012. Uh, Our family had sold out of our elevator in 09 and the new owners wanted me to come on board for a transition period. And so I was on with them until about 2014, uh, whenever I started, uh, you know, uh, the Bennett Consulting outfit and then we moved into ag market. But regardless, 2012 was a rough year because a great year overall. It's a great year. But there was a lot of folks that they, they come into a rally from spring time frame of, you know, four dollars, four fifty. And all of a sudden you're looking at five fifty corn say, oh, man, I got to latch on to this. I'm going to sell 50 percent of my crop. You know, some people got up to two thirds sold. It's, you know, you get up to six dollars, six fifty. Why? How can you go wrong? But it never rained again. In the I states, it just never rained again, and so uh, the unfortunate reality is that a lot of folks had sold fifty and sixty percent, uh, and they raised thirty and forty percent, and then you had to cover the contracts you'd already sold. The difference between where you sold and the price that it was the day that you delivered—that's not much fun whatsoever. So I totally understand uh, their angst. Here's the thing, though: uh, I've been saying all along, and I know I've said it with you because I've said it with everyone I've talked to. Flexibility is the name of the game here in 2021. The the situation is so tight that if we have a weather issue, this market could absolutely explode. And so if you're going to sell over, oh, I don't know, 25, 30% of your crop, it makes a lot of sense to be super flexible. Maybe you're just selling corn and buying yourself a call. Uh, but you know, if nothing else, buy a put option at a price level that's higher than what you've sold at by probably a dollar. Uh, you can buy one of those today pretty darn cheap because this market is so elevated. And again, that's comments with Matt Bennett of agmarket.net. 
You can find more online, markettalkag.com. Appreciate you joining us for another edition of this Market Talk update on Fast Line Fast Track in Nashville. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. And you can find Jesse's daily market updates at markettalkag.com. Again, markettalkag.com. And you can find him by searching Market Talk on Facebook. He also appears on the American Ag Network. And you can hear him host Your Ag Today weekday mornings about 6.50 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, Rural Radio Channel 147. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, it's time for another installment of Bushels and Cents with our buddy, the hot rod farmer, Ray Bohax. Don't forget, you can check out all of his great multimedia content at FarmMachineryDigest.com. Welcome to Bushels and Cents from Farm Machinery Digest Radio, heard exclusively on Sirius XM Channel 147 Rural Radio. I am your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer. And never forget, it is not what you make, but what you keep that counts. If any of your engines experience blue-tinted smoke from the exhaust on startup after being shut off for a minimum of a few hours, do not think the worst. Historically, it is the result of dried-out valve stem seals that are allowing hot oil to leak past the valve guide and drip onto the top of the piston. When the engine fires, the oil is burned off and the smoke is no longer present. This condition will, over time, build excessive carbon deposits on the piston crown, but the seals can be replaced without taking the engine apart. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Visit FarmMachineryDigest.com, where steel and soil meet. And don't forget, Ray Ball Hacks has launched Farm Machinery Digest Radio on Sirius XM Rural Radio, Channel 147. It airs each Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern and again on Sundays at 6 p.m. Eastern, so I hope you go and give him a listen. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we head on over to the musical side of the house, where this week's special guest is another of the incredible emerging female artists coming out of Nashville. She was a contestant on American Idol a few years back and has been in the Nashville area for the past six years, riding and trying to make it to the top. She's here this week, so she must be doing something right. Allison Elena, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. How have you been? I'm good. You know, we're, we're starting to get busy again with shows and, and whatnot, so I'm, I'm happy. I'm excited. And we also want to mention we've got uh, Jesse Widener on guitar tonight. He's a little bit out of the frame. Say hey awesome. there. Hey guys, how you doing? Thanks for having me. <laughs> Just as important as the uh, as the artist herself is the the supporting uh, cast oh. around her, and that, and that's one thing I want to talk about tonight. We'll get into that a little bit later on because I know Allison has surrounded herself with really good people, and uh, and uh, that shows through the uh, the final products. Well, it's great to have you on here because uh, we've tried a couple times to get this scheduled, and we've had things uh, knock us off the rails, but yeah. Finally, finally here. <laughs> Before we get going this week, let's kick things off with a song from Alice and Elena. This is Used To on Fast Line Fast Track. Same bar, same drink, same store, but it ain't me. Looks like you picked up right where we left off. You're talking, she's laughing. Seems like you're having a good time. And now I'm checking in with you I could get used to 
some great stuff to kick us off there from Allison Elena. Allison, thank you so much for that. Thank you. That's um, that's like one of my favorite songs, I think. And because I put it out in July, we haven't really gotten to play it out much. So I'm glad we get to. I love it. It's got a catchy hook to it. Thank you. Well, I tell you, you, you've been cranking out some dynamite singles. We're going to talk about that a bit later on here. But to go back to tell your story, we have to go back to Beacon, New York, population yes. 15541. Is that what it is? Wow. Surprised it's that many, honestly. In, in the Hudson yeah. Valley, where you were exposed to country music uh, at an early age. And like a, a lot of the guests we've had on here, I guess, uh, started uh, performing really young when you were six years old. How did you get into performing? And, uh, you know, what, what did that look like? Did you have a musical family? So I didn't. I uh, My family loves music, and my mom was, you know, would sing to me every night, but was not, you know, pursuing music by any means. Um, but, yeah, I started singing when I was three. And so I think it just kind of whatever opportunities came up that she could get this little girl on stage, she took. So the first, I think the first time I ever sang in front of people, I sang um, the national anthem for our like local AAA baseball team, which okay. was the Hudson Valley Renegades. And so I was, I think I was five turned six um, when I did that. And that was incredible because I think that stadium holds like 7,000 people. So for that to be my first audience was awesome. Um, but yeah, after that, I started doing like musical theater and things like that. And it was pretty much any opportunity that I could get on a stage because we didn't really know what, you know, pursuing a career in music looked like when you're a kid. Um, yeah, it was anything that we could do, we took, so. Well, it seems like if you could knock out the national anthem at that age, everything else like that should be a piece of cake, right? Well, I mean, I love being in front of people and it was funny because I couldn't read, obviously, at the time. And so my mom was like, okay, remember this line. Okay, now this line. Like, it was just listening to things over and over again until I remembered them enough, um, which has served well because now I think I listen to a song twice and I know the words, so that yeah. is helpful. <laughs> So who did you grow up listening to? I grew up like super into Martina McBride, um, Reba McIntyre, Sarah Evans, like as I got, you know, a, a little older, but my childhood was always Martina. And I think, um, I think like I based a lot of my style on that. And a lot of the songs that I wanted to learn how to sing, I just listened to her sing them and figured it out. Um, but yeah, it's Martina and Reba, a lot of Leanne Rhymes too, uh, that whole women of country in the 90s. Well, I tell you, when I was listening to the song Practice, and for anybody that wants to go back and listen to that, man, I, I hear a lot of Sarah Evans and, and a lot of Martina in that song. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I love both of them. And I I, I just always like valued a, a good note, you know, and a, and a really, really dramatic, big ballad. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you hear them in that song. So you started writing lyrics at age 14. What inspired you to do that? <laughs> Honestly, as bad as it sounds, it was definitely like my first over emotional seventh grade breakup. But I, I think at the time that was like Taylor Swift's first album, second album. So I was like, she could do this. I can sit at my piano and I can figure this out. Um, and yeah, that's, that is a hundred percent what happened. And then I didn't really write a lot after that. I would write occasionally, but it wasn't like sitting down and making myself write. Um, and then as I got older, I realized like, okay, I need to sit down and like try this, you know, not just, not just do it at 11 o'clock at night when I, and set. <laughs> so early on, it wasn't just a matter of uh, writing down lyrics. You were actually at the keyboard as well. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. No, that, that song was like a whole big finished product. Um, start to finish. I sat down and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. It was just one night. And yeah. And then you took up guitar at age 19. Were you a quick study or was that something that took a little while? Um, so I'm still not very good at guitar. So I would like to say it was quick because I didn't like master it by any means. Um, but I honestly, it sounds bad, but I, again, like listen to these other musicians that were like, Hey, 
if you know three chords, four chords, you can write a song. And so I learned the easiest chords I could. And I was like, all right, cool. I will learn this and I'll use a capo and it'll be great. And then when I got to Nashville, I, I still, I have obviously have a guitar and like I'll play. Um, but I use it mostly just for a writing vessel. And then once the song is the finished four bad chords, I take it to Jesse and he makes it great. So, yeah. yeah. I'm always like, Hey, here's this song. Feel free to change anything musically. Just take it. <laughs> He's like, well, this is what it should be. Okay. What did, even, what did even learning the basics do for your songwriting? Um, I think honestly, it just, it, it helped with the writing happy and sad songs because I feel like on a piano, everything I wrote sounded sad. You know, um, and everything was slow. But when I figured out, they're like, oh, I can do a C and a G and a D and it'll kind of sound happy and I can play it a little faster. And it just helped me write different types of things. Um, and I think it helped me feel like I was writing more country music. You know, because it sounded like it was like sounded like it was meant to be on an acoustic guitar. Um, so that definitely helped, I think, stylistically, like where I wanted to go. What does your writing process look like these days? I mean, are you doing many co-writes or do you write a lot by yourself or? I co-write all the time and I, I have a really good group of co-writers that are also my really good friends. Um, so that always works well. I write by myself a lot, but I think, I think sometimes you need the extra brains, you know? Yeah. Um, so I do, we were actually kind of talking about this earlier. I think there are some songs that I have that I've written on my own that are great, but you can tell some of them, I think, I think some of them get too personal sometimes, you know, when you're writing by yourself, you're like, this line is going to stay in here where when you have someone else in the room, that can kind of be like, that line's not that great. It, it helps a little bit. Um, but I love co-writing. And, and like I said, I have a, a really good group of friends that are also crazy talented. So we've gotten really good products. So what you're saying is that objectivity is a good thing, huh? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I uh, I am so OCD that I'm like, well, it happened on a Tuesday. So we have to say this on Tuesday. And they're like, well, Thursday sounds better. I'm like, fine. You know, so I'm like, I'm, I'm that person though. So I, I think... Co-writing helps you get away from that. You know, it helps you kind of realize what the what the best point for the song is. And you find that usually once you get through that whole process and you take a step back and look at it, that they were right. Most of the time, sometimes yeah. sometimes there's a line that you'll fight for, you know, and that you really feel like is the good one. And so you have to stand your ground. But a lot of times I think you realize like, OK, yeah, that does sound better. <laughs> uh, so you better morning writer or daytime writer, nighttime writer. I'm an all the time writer. I am. Yeah, I think I mean. I'll typically like have 10 or 11 AMs, but sometimes I I'll get home sometimes and be in a mood and sit at my guitar at midnight. And then next thing I know it's 4 AM and I'm like, well, okay, here we are. So I think it just, yeah, I think it totally depends. Uh -huh. Now are you starting to get out a little bit more now that things are starting to open up? What, what does a typical week look like for you in terms of being able to get out and, and not only to, to perform yourself, but to, to watch others that you know perform? Well, honestly, I feel like, last year we were probably playing like once twice a week mm. um but now we're kind of like once a month which is way 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 different um and i've been trying to to kind of get out to the rounds but it's just it's a totally different environment now um and a totally different scene and and with capacity things and issues like that you know it's just sometimes you don't you just don't make it out so 2014 you try out for american idol which at the time still on fox you make it to hollywood what do you remember from that first audition um, my, well, my judges audition was people always say like, were you nervous? I'm like, I wasn't nervous. I was legitimately scared because you just don't, you wait around all day and, and you kind of have time to get your nerves down and, and you almost get more anxious that you just want to get it over with. But when you walk in, you realize that you're five feet from, you know, Keith Urban and JLo and you're like, Oh, okay. This is, this is real now. Um, and also I, yeah, I was 19 and 
I don't think I realized the age gap of 19 and 26 where I am now, just being an artist, you know? Um, and at the time, like I wasn't playing with a band, I wasn't anything. So I think I was just kind of like someone who really loved to sing where now it's like, Oh, I don't, like, it would definitely be a different, a different vibe, I think. But, um, it was amazing. It was such a good experience and, and they really, really loved me, which was the best confidence booster in the world. Where did you do that? I actually auditioned in Nashville. So oh. I, uh, I'm from New York, but I was, and I was living in New York at the time, but my brother is, lives in Nashville and he had just gotten married and he needed someone to watch his dog. And it like lined up that the audition was three days after his wedding. And so me and my mom were like, okay, well let's just drop them off like at the airport for their honeymoon and drive down to Nashville. And we did. And the next day I auditioned and it was like, everything just fell into place. And I know we've had a lot of people from Idol and from The Voice and so forth on here and everybody's had kind of varied experiences. Do you feel like it opened doors for you? I mean, was it was it a good overall experience? I think so, only because I don't know that I would have gotten to Nashville without it. Without mm -hmm. it. Um, I met so many people on the show and so many people that I write with and, you know, ended up, you know, making music with or performing with. And I don't think I would have been opened to the music industry that was here. You know, like at the time we were just playing where we could in New York and we were playing bars and, and kind of like county fair scene. And I feel like I thought that's all there was, but getting down here, I was like, Oh, wait a minute, there's writing and there's, you know, putting out music and, and all of these things that I didn't know existed. And I didn't know that I could do. Um, and I am now, which is amazing. So I, I definitely am thankful for the experience and it was a blast. It was fun. So I would, I would always do it again. Was there any advice that you took for, from anybody involved with that show that, that runs through your head still today that, that you cling to? Honestly, I think it's just get to Nashville. Like, cause I remember so many people that were on the show with me being like, Oh, you know, you, you have a good voice or whatever. Why aren't you in Nashville? And I was like, I don't know. Do I need to be in Nashville? And they're like, yeah. So, so I think like that was my main thing is that it was just like, I got to get there and I, I got to start working and I got to start writing. And, and so many of them were writers as well, which at the time I wasn't really writing so much. You know what I mean? I was writing when I felt like it, but I wasn't actively making myself sit down and, and try to make a good song. Yeah. Um, and they were. So I think like just seeing the people and seeing what they were doing and realizing that I could do that too was huge help. So they tell you to get to Nashville and you do get to Nashville. What's the first thing you do when you get there? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, I, I, so when I moved here, I knew that I'm really close to my family and New York is obviously 14, 15 hours away. Um, and I knew that I would go home if I didn't have a reason to be here. So as soon as I got here, I like, I went back to school. I started working. I did everything I could to make sure I had to stay here, <laughs> you know, like that I couldn't just go home if I got sad. Um, but at the time, because I went back to school and I was, you know, really busy, like trying to survive in the city. Um, I wasn't really diving into the community yet. Um, so I wasn't co-writing yet. I was writing on my own and I was starting to play out, but it was funny. I think I played two shows by myself, two shows ever. And my brother, who is actually one of Jesse's best friends, that's how we all know each other. Okay. He was like, you need a guitar player. And I was like, I'm aware. <laughs> and he's like, you need to meet Jesse. And that's how everything kind of got started. Um, and then once I, yeah, once I realized I wasn't terrible, I was like, okay, cool, let's, let's do this. And then we just started playing out all the time. So you talk about going to school. I understand like Emily Miller, who was on the show last week and a few others we've had on here, uh, you attended Belmont university. Yes, I did. Where you learned a lot about the business side of music. What was your big takeaway from the whole Belmont experience? I think music business is a huge thing that people lose in the industry. You know, they think it's just coming down and writing songs. And, and I think learning 
publishing side of it and learning, you know, what I really needed to get in order to be able to walk into meetings or, you know, present myself well and represent myself because as indie artists, that's what we're doing. You know, we don't have this big money and big team behind us. So I think being well-rounded and kind of knowing a little bit of what everybody does is so helpful. And um, that's, I mean, Belmont, I didn't really do performance music at Belmont. I did, I was music business and PR and um, just everything I took away from those classes, I think helped me learn how to be a musician, but learned how to do the business side of me as well. You know? Yeah. What was yeah. your favorite, what was your favorite course while you were there? Ooh, I don't know. Um, I had a PR writing class that I loved because I think it also made me realize that like, you, you, everything can be spun, you know? And it was kind of, it was this class that that Belmont like made you take. And it was a like, hey, you have to know that you could be represented in any way. So make sure you're representing yourself in a good way and, and the way you want. And, um, and it was just so incredible to see the backside of it, you know, and to kind of see like, this is what is really going on and this is what we're gonna spin, you know? Yeah, we bring up a good point. Yeah, I mean, you, you've been in town a few years now, just in that yeah. short time, I'd say short, relatively five or six years. How have you seen the, the business change just in that time? Honestly, I think in the last year, I've seen it majorly change just because like I said, we went from playing out all the time and and kind of playing with the same people all the time where the last year has completely changed the people we're seeing and the venues we're playing. And and I think a lot of bigger artists are like playing the bars now, which is awesome, but also a little odd, you know? We're like, oh, wait a minute, like we're going out on Sundays and seeing these like major up and coming artists rather than just seeing our friends. Um, and so I think, I think it's just, there's so many more routes now that we can go. You know, there is like these live streams, there's, their social media is a huge thing. And I think just taking advantage of all the different routes that we have um, has been has been an eye opener in the last year and a half now. Yeah. Well, and you talk about all those routes, too. I mean, even going back to 2014, 2015, you, did, you didn't have the uh, strength of Spotify or some of the other streaming yeah. platforms that uh, have really kind of uh, put, put a lot of artists on, on a different kind of path. Yeah, it really does. And and I think also it's it's realizing that there is so many different ways to make it. You know, I think when you're not living when when I wasn't living here and it was like I thought, you know, American Idol was my last hope. And I was like, wait a minute, one, I'm nineteen and there's a whole city there that I was like, I can do this so many different ways. Um and there is so many of us that are are making it in different ways. So I think it's it's awesome. It's a great city full of full of ways, ways to go, you know. Well, full, full of ways and full of just a ton of talent, both, both yeah. performers and songwriters. How do you stand out from that kind of crowd? I don't know. I think we just try as weird as that sounds like I, I've never worried about trying to be something different because I don't think that works. And so I've just like said what I wanted to say and put out the music I wanted to say and make sure that I liked who I was and that I was doing what I liked. Um, and I think if, if it doesn't make me stand out, then it'll just make me stay around. Yeah. And that then, you know, I will have the longevity to, to have a career rather than, you know, chasing the fad at the time. Well, I don't circle back around to something you mentioned just briefly a, a second ago, and that was having the right people around you, the right team around you. And yeah. from what I've observed, that's one thing that, that you've been able to do is surround yourself with the right people. H how important is that to, to your success and your longevity? I've noticed that I, th I just think it's so important because I think one to have people that believe in you is to, I mean, and if, even working with, you know, musicians or producers or anything like that, 
you can 100% tell when they love your project or when they're working with you, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm, again, very, very lucky that I now have a guitar player that is my friend and also would tell me if the song sucked and tell me <laughs> if he likes the song. So, you know, when he's like, oh, this is a good song, I like this one, I'm like, thank you. Like, I'm glad that I'm not, you know, making him play for me all the time, which is great. Um, and my producer that I have, I love him. His name's Zach Mano. He is so good and so good at capturing what I want it to sound like. Um, but he also is, is so good at supporting me, you know, which is so important. Um, and we have Emily who's also here too. She is my photographer and she's phenomenal. Her name is Emily April Allen. And she, yeah, also, I feel like we're always on the same page with our visions and, and I'm like, Hey, this might be weird. Or she's like, Oh, let's try this. And we always get a product that I love and that I think she most of the time loves. So I'm happy with it. It's, it's good. And it sounds like everybody's kind of innovative and thinks outside the box a little bit too. Yeah. And I, I think, well, I think when you have people that are working for you, like quote unquote, that they don't always put their opinions in because they're working for you. You know, you show up, you do your thing, whatever. Um, but when you're friends and when you have a team and also when I think when you hopefully believe in the product that you work harder to make it better. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the early connections you made when you moved to Nashville, were, were they helpful? And are you still uh, connected to some of those people? Do you still talk with them? Yeah, I do. Um, and they they were super helpful. So one of my friends, I actually, I was kind of back and forth for a while, just playing with people or like starting to write with people. And then I realized I was spending like five months out of the year on my brother's couch. <laughs> so I was like, I should probably just move here. This doesn't make sense, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I, some of the first rounds we played were because of friends that I had met through idol. And they were like, Oh, you're finally in town. Come play. I have this thing or just meeting people or them introducing me. So it was, it's super helpful. It's such a networking town and, and, you know, meeting friends. And like I said, just meeting people that believe in you that want to help you through the door is, is super, super helpful. We've had the opportunity to showcase your, your music quite a bit around Nashville, uh, places like The Local. Shout out to our buddy Jeff Reed there with The Local and also Tin Roof, as we were talking about before, and, and so many of the other places around there. How do you feel like you have matured as a performer uh, since you came to town? I think kind of like I was saying before, just knowing who I am now, you know, um, as much as I loved the Idol experience, I think there was a piece of me that was not ready for it because I wasn't an artist quote unquote yet. Again, I was someone that liked to sing and I don't think I really knew what I wanted to say. Um, but now I I love playing original songs. I love being who I am. Um, and I think once you get comfortable in that you just, you get better. And I love the stage. I've always loved the stage. Um, I was definitely like a overdramatic Broadway baby as a child. So now that the stage has gone from actual or for actual people instead of, you know, my grandma's living room is, has been great. Well, we uh, talked about the team around you, but what about like you go to you go to these rounds and and you're around other performers and so forth. Do you get any kind of uh, constructive criticism or meaningful feedback that that helps uh, sharpen one another? Is that is that something that you guys engage in? Um, I don't think anyone ever gives negative feedback Mm -hmm. to you, but I think you can tell when someone actually wants to work with you or actually thinks you're good, you know? Um, and I feel like you meet so many co-writers or meet people that you will perform with down the road at the shows. So yeah, meeting people after and then being like, yeah, let's, let's get a date. Let's do this. You know, I think that just shows that they at least believed in you a little bit, but I don't think you ever get constructive. I don't think anyone would, 
would be that brave, but I don't know, maybe. I, yeah. That would be interesting. <laughs> maybe after you get to know them a little bit better. Yeah, right? They'd be like, you were really bad. I'm like, okay, <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> the most recent single that you released back in February is, is Break It. Tell, tell me about that song. Yeah, um, so Break It was, uh, again, Delaney Grant and I wrote that, and that was, I think, our song baby for a long time because it was a very, very personal experience that I had gone through, and she's one of my best friends, so she was kind of with me along all of that ride, and one night we were together and it was supposed to be a wine night that turned right. Um, which sometimes those are the best ones. And yeah, she was like, you know, we haven't got sat down and got to dig this out and write about it. So let's do it. And we did. And, and again, it was so, so personal that I didn't think other people would find themselves in it. Um, but they did. And, and so I was super happy about that. And so finally put it out and I love it. I'm just, I'm happy it's out in the world. And like I said, some songs are just so personal to you that you can't wait for them to have a life. And, that it's being well received is great. Well, it sounds like you have a real connection with Delaney. What is it uh, about working with her that, that just seems to click? I don't know. Honestly, we are just such good friends that I think we're not afraid to be like, that line's terrible. Like, no, we're not doing that, you know? And so I think we, we dig so well into a song that we get really good products because we're not afraid to offend each other because we know we're still going to be great friends. <laughs> well, we've been talking for a while, so let's stop and hear one more from Allison and Elena. This is Break It on Fast Line Fast Track. Leaving again, calling a cab Back to my place Holding my hand, stumbling in I say tequila's to blame But I'm just lying, I'm just trying To find an excuse to justify Every time I leave the light on for you I know I shouldn't Call it quits, but you know. 
And uh, I bet that's one that captivates them in a live setting, isn't it? Yeah, I um, that was one of my favorites. And we, I wrote that like, I think two and a half years ago um, with Delaney Grant, who is one of my closest friends and we co-write all the time. Um, and we had been playing it out so much. And I feel like when a song is so close to you, you're not really sure if it's good for everyone else, you know, or right. if you're just emotionally attached to it. Um, but we had finally heard enough, like, I love that song or I relate to that song. So it was just time to put it out. Do you have situations? I know it gets in uh, some of those places and it, it gets busy. People are talking. It's loud. They're not paying attention. Do you, do you ever find those moments where it's like that? And then all of a sudden you, you start performing a song like that and things just kind of stop or come. Yeah, down I, think, I think we have a, a few songs that are, you know, most of them are those big ballads. Some of them are like real party songs. And honestly, that's the, the best time, though, is that when you can get them to to pay attention to you because you're like, OK, wait this is a good song. And I didn't catch them for a minute. I let that they listen to the song, you know? Um, so that's great. And that is seriously like the best feeling. So your first year in Nashville, you released uh, your first two singles crazy and all over my heart. How much of a thrill was that for you to actually have something in your hand to show for all your hard work? That honestly was exactly what it was for. It was like finally getting something to stand on. Um, and I had wrote, wrote, wrote crazy a long time ago before I moved to Nashville. Um, and so when I got into the studio, I was kind of going through songs or songs that we were writing now and, and figuring out what was going to make it, you know? And so I was happy that that one did because it was, it was an old one that I never thought would. Um, and so it was cool that it got to find an audience. Where are you recording? So I now work with a producer. His name is Zach Mano. He has a home studio and he's awesome. He works with a lot of people in town too. And he is just so great at capturing the vision. Um, he didn't do my EP, but he's done every song since practice. And uh, we just, he's just, again, really, really great at taking the references and taking who I am and, and knowing me. And he's a friend of mine as well. So he's good at capturing who Allison is and what I want to sound like, um, which is, is great because sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I think you get to the end of a song and it doesn't feel just right. Yeah. Um, and he makes everything exactly the way I would have wanted it. So. We followed up uh, those two singles in November 2018 with your self-titled EP. And then you were working on the music video for the song Practice, which we talked about earlier when COVID kind of got in the way of things. What impact did the pandemic have on plans that you had for releasing music? Honestly, it just made us kind of double think everything because I think everyone was home and everyone was listening to music. So it seemed like a great time, you know. But at the same time, we weren't playing shows. And I think we've gotten to know so many people through playing out and you meet so many people that you would have never met just from them stumbling into a show. Um, and so with that aspect, it's, it was a little scary to release music last year because we weren't sure when we would get to play it. I know, um, used to the first song that we played, we've maybe played that song out like twice, yeah, that, something. Yeah. yeah. If that, and, uh, it's crazy cause it's been out since July. And typically if we were going to put a song out, we would be playing it all the time we probably would have had a release show or something around it um, and really got to promote it so i think the promoting aspect was not there but at the same time you know streaming came up and and all of these live opportunities so that was cool um but it definitely i definitely missed the live aspect of things well with that said uh, when you kind of had to shift into a different mode at the outset of the pandemic uh, how did you continue to build momentum uh, you know, despite the pandemic, so so you didn't lose what you had really built over the, the last couple of years? Honestly, I think a huge, huge part for me was realizing that everyone was also in this situation. 
and that I feel like I thought like I'm I'm not in Ma Nashville for three months. I'm gonna be behind, and then I was like, everyone is home for three months, so it's fine. Um, and I was writing so much, and so that really helped me feel like I was still progressing because I feel like one, my writing got so good because that's literally all I was doing. I had nothing to do. We said sit in my house and write all the time. Um, and we got really good at Zoom writes, and and I got some of my favorite songs over the pandemic, which is crazy, and I never would have thought that, but um, we did. So I think it's just just staying busy and trying to keep yourself motivated and. So that when you came back, you were ready to go and you were wanting to go, you know? Uh, how many songs would you estimate that you've written over the past year? I have no idea. Only because I don't know if, like, you write so many songs and I think a lot of them you kind of just like, okay, well, that's there. It's in the memos, you know, it's on it's on paper, but, like, you don't go back to it. Yeah. Um, and But, in yeah, in the last year, I don't, I mean, I write, like, four days a week. So, I don't know, a lot. <laughs> I mean, I know you sent me at least 25 or 30 just, yeah. just through voice memos, you know, yeah. just like, hey, start start taking a look at this one and get it ready. But yeah, that was the crazy thing is like coming out of the pandemic is I was like, hey, I think it was like October. We played a first show, right? October? Yeah. yeah. And I was like, hey, Jesse, we finally got around. Here's 20 new songs. Let me know what you like. And he's like, OK, well, you wrote an album. I was like, yeah, sorry. Here we are. <laughs> Jesse's like, pace yourself, huh? Yeah. yeah, right. But it's good because then I was like, hey, you have all of these to choose from. And he did come back and was like, hey, these six are awesome. And so we're like, OK, cool. Let's let's play those. Let's run with those. So so uh, you, you talked about and, and we heard a while ago used to. And, and then also in 2020, you released Jean Jacket. Tell me about that song. Um, Jean Jacket is a fun one. We so I had written that, I think, two two years ago um, with Delaney Grant and Caitlin Robertson. And that was just they're again, two of my great friends. and. We had such a fun time because Delaney walked into the room and was like, you know when you break up with someone, but you really want to keep their stuff? And I was like, I, I guess, yeah. She was like, well, yeah, like, you know, like you have a really good jacket or a really nice sweatshirt, but you can't wear it out because then he thinks that you're just wearing it for him. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, forget that. Let's write that song. And so we just wanted to make it this sassy, like, no, I don't need you. I genuinely just liked your jacket. Um, but it's funny because I don't think I realized how much I wear denim. And so that song, and now everyone's like, oh, jean jacket. I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it, guys. I was wearing before I put it out, I promise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it is a fun one. It is, I think, one of, our, one of our favorites. And now you accidentally have a trademark, huh? I guess, yeah. I don't know. That would be cool. Like a little, like, I get it, like, bedazzled on the back. Yeah, yeah, My yeah. name? No, maybe. Might have to do it. <laughs> so things are starting to open up a little bit here. What's on the horizon for you for this summer and beyond? I'm not, honestly... I'm not sure. I know. So last year we were supposed to kind of mini tour um, up the East Coast. And I had a bunch of dates in like New York and some in uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut. And obviously none of those happened. Mm -hmm. So I haven't, we're kind of just, I think, taking things month by month right now. And I know I have uh, some things lined up up until like May, June. Um, but I haven't really dug into the summer yet. So I'm just hoping that things are open and that it's that we have a little bit more opportunity than we do now because I mean we had started doing some full band stuff in Nashville right before the pandemic um but obviously like full band is not as much of a thing right now um so we're just taking the acoustic gigs and and doing it and I mean I love playing original music and so I'm glad that we have a stage for that here now, I know you've gotten pretty entrenched in what's going on there in Nashville do you get back much or did you pre-pandemic and and play out uh, much in the Hudson Valley area so before, yeah, it was pretty much every time I went home, I would base it around a gig because I was like, hey, if I can pay for my flight and make money for the weekend, that would be great. Um, 
And when you're not playing in Nashville, you tend to make a little bit more money, which is great. <laughs> um, but I haven't played really out much since, uh, yeah, in the last year. But before I moved to Nashville, we were like, our, our whole summer was booked and it was fairs and festivals and it was a blast and it was so fun. And I love the guys that I have up there that play in the band, but um, we haven't done much. And, and even when I was going back, I was doing more acoustic stuff just because I said it was nice to, you know, call venues that I had played and been like, hey, I'm going to be in town this weekend. If I can play a show, that'd be great. You know, so so it worked out just to, to at least break even on going home and getting to go home was nice. Do you have any other places that, that interest you that, that you want to explore in terms of, of, of playing and building a fan base? I mean, we've talked about Austin. We were Austin's kind of talking up. about that earlier today. And <clears throat> I've heard that it's such a hub for country music. So that would be awesome to go to. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's getting out in Nashville right now and getting back out and, and letting people know that we're still here and that we're, you know, going to be coming back. So, yeah. So uh, what's the schedule looking like for uh, releasing new music here in 2021? Because it seems like you're on a pretty aggressive timetable for, for dropping singles. Yeah, I um, I think I'm hoping for May, June. Um, mm -hmm. And I've had I have a few that I'm kind of going back and forth with and seeing what I want, like May or June and then hopefully August or September to look like. So ho hopefully another two this year. Um, but yeah, I'm just not sure which ones yet. <laughs> so everybody that you compare notes with, are, are they for the most part focused on just pumping out singles or uh, I mean, are people focused on EPs, LPs? What, what is it these days? Um, I think personally in my circle, it seems to be that singles have been uh, like the recent move just because content is so fast now yeah, and it's yeah. like you pour one you pour so much money and you pour so much time and so much of you into an ep and then it's like you only get like pe people only gravitate towards one song off it and so i think making our projects last as long as we can is important um and that's that's where my head is always at it's just kind of like like i said just keeping consistency and keeping longevity and and giving people because i feel like if you release five of great songs right and then it's like, well, what do we do next? Because in six months, they're still going to want new music, regardless yeah. of how much you put out. And I think at our level, one, being indie artists and being on our own budget is like, you know, you got to be got to be smart with it. So that's that's why I gravitate more towards singles. Um, and I think like indies kind of do as well for that. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to uh, what we were talking about earlier with having your own pathway here. If, if you can just yeah. uh, keep them going with the singles and uh, not, not have a bunch of music hanging out that... Uh, yeah exactly kind of confuse the issue or get stale yeah you Agreed. know yeah. Keep, keep them coming back for a little more and then social media kind of plays into that too how yeah. big are you on social media is that something you spend a lot of time on i need to spend more and i um i've like recently you know gotten into the tiktok crowd and, and tried yeah. to do that but i'm just so bad at it and i also i am yeah man i'm so bad i uh am typically not together you know um if i don't have a show i'm typically in sweats and that's another reason why I think social media and me are bad because I'm like, I'm never presentable for this, you know? Um, but when I am, I make sure I make like a few, you know, to keep it going. Um, but yeah, I just, I try to be very honest, I think on mine, um, which is good. You know, hopefully if you like honest and you like an occasional New York attitude, then you'll love my socials, but you know, um, but yeah, I think I don't, I'm definitely not as active as I should be, but that'll be another 2021 thing too. I know uh, live streams like this kind of became commonplace over the last year as people were looking for other means to uh, get yeah. get uh, the message out. Of, have you done many of these? Or is, is that something that became part of the routine? 
It really did. Um, especially because right in the beginning we had released the music video. So it was like, well, what do we do for this? Um, and some of the venues that we had played down here were starting to do live streams, which was really cool. The rounds that we were, were playing all the time were like, Hey, we'll just go, you know, on Instagram live, um, which was great. And then as we started releasing more music, we kind of got into more things like this and, and reaching out to different podcasts and, and all that kind of stuff, um, which is great. And it's definitely helped us reach audiences that we wouldn't have, you know? So there's, there's definitely a balance because like I said, on the live shows, you get people you would have never met, but also on this, there's people all over the world that you would have never met. So. So what are some of your long-term goals for the business? My long-term goals. I mean, like, I think I have the big vision board, you know, and it's like a CMA and it's all of those things. Um, like I said, I think it's just, it's just to get in the room with, you know, better writers and, and to keep making music. And I feel like I don't ever want to go backwards, right? Like, my month to month day to day is to constantly write better music, constantly sing better, constantly put out the next song that is better than the last. Um, and just to still love it and to be able to do this, you know, to be able to not have a normal job would is the be all end all goal. So, well, it's funny you ask about that because that's one thing that I was curious about as well. You know, you've been a performer uh, virtually all your life, but if there's anything else you could do away from music, what, what would it be? I honestly, I have no idea. I, so yeah, I've been singing since I was three. I think I said that earlier, but I have never, like I never went through the phase of wanting to be a doctor or wanting to be a teacher. It was never, I was always like, well, I'm going to sing. Yep. I don't know what, I'm, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to figure it out that I could be a singer. Um, and I think so many people like throughout my life were like, well, you could be a music teacher. And I was like, nope, I want to be on stage all the time. I don't want to sing. And so I don't know what I would do. Um, I know I work, I'm a nanny, right? I'm part-time um, and I love working with kids, but I definitely don't, I don't really see anything else being my whole life. Uh, what, uh, is there an away from music? Is there anything you like to do away from music? I love, uh, I love being outside. I have a big, super friendly dog that I love hiking with and pretty much just taking everywhere. I'm also a really big foodie. So I'm like the, yeah, new restaurant. Let's go try new appetizers and drinks and stuff like that. Um, but I'm, I'm a social butterfly, which has been difficult the last year. Cause yeah. I also, I mean, I'm, I'm the one that's not afraid to like go to the restaurant by themselves because I know I'll make friends with the table next to me, um, which is not a thing right now. So that's been a little difficult, but I just, I love to be around people. I love to meet people. I love, you know, everything, everything that gets me out and moving, I'm happy. Yeah. So you've been doing this for a while now. What's the most difficult part of the music business? Um, I think, I think it's keeping going sometimes, you know, I think it's, it's making sure that you are motivated and that you still love it every day, which I've been lucky that I've, I've never had. I mean, I think you have days and you have weeks where you're like, okay, wait, what am I doing? I'm terrible. You know? <laughs> but, um, but I've been lucky that I've never walked away. And I think that is, is the hardest part for so many people. It's like making sure that outside factors don't weigh you down enough that you give up your dream. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because, uh, it, you know, you seem like a, a very self-assured person, a confident person. I mean, is that something that you struggle with at times, is self-doubt? Or uh, um, how, how do you kind of beat that back if it does creep in? As bad as that sounds, I think I struggle with that in every aspect of life except for music, which yeah. is weird. Because my, my entire life, I've always been like, I don't like this piece or this piece or this piece, but I can sing and I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've been lucky that I've turned that part into the career, you know, um, <laughs> this is such a ridiculous story and I can't believe I'm actually about to say this, but I, for example, 
So like, I feel like I, I have kind of a low voice for a girl speaking wise. And I, in high school, I would always get made fun of. And some stupid boy who I probably wrote a song about after this was like, oh, you sound so stupid. You should just sing everything. And I was like, thank you so much. <laughs> I should sing everything. You're right. And it was like the best compliment in the world though. Cause I was like, man, even these people don't like me think that I should sing. And I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So I think I've been very lucky that I, uh, I think when I'm sad, I sing and it, yeah. So that, that's always my go-to to kind of get out of things. It's just like, keep singing. We'll have to coin a new phrase here. Backhanded validation. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's it. That's uh, that's some interesting stuff. I tell you, what, what what is your favorite part of the music business? Um, honestly, I love the creative aspect of it. I love getting in a room and and writing a song and feeling so happy about this song. And one feeling like you said everything you wanted to say because sometimes you bring either if it's a hook or even a concept into a write. Sometimes you don't really get it all done, you know, and you feel like oh, I could have wrote that better, or I feel like I could write another song about it and maybe get more accomplished. Um, but it is such a good feeling when you feel like you did it right. And, yeah. and especially when it sings well and it feels good. And, and so I think that's my favorite part is I love just writing good music and, and getting to perform it is great, but, but I really dove into the writing aspect, I think in the last few years of being here. Well, before we get out of here this week, let's hear one last song from Allison Elena. This is her new one, Jean Jacket on Fast Line, Fast Track.
catchy song from Alice and Elena. I'm going to hang on to my jean jacket. She's going to hang on to hers because that's now her trademark. And if you remember, you know, John Conley in the 1970s uh, wrote a song called Rose Colored Glasses. He, he performed it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all these years later, he, he still pulls out Rose Colored Glasses on stage here. And <laughs> so like that kind of sticks with you. Yeah, I'm carry that I will, around with you. Yes, forever. I will have a jean jacket. I we were also talking about this earlier that I've now collected way too many, but it's fine. <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> well, there's worse things, I guess, right? Yeah, right. True. <laughs> we're getting some uh, good feedback on that one here. And before we get out of here, uh, Allison, where can folks follow you if they want to know more about your career, find out your tour schedule, and and just keep up to date with new music and everything you have going on? Yes, I would love that. Um, like I said, I love to meet and talk to everybody. So please follow and, and hang out with us and, and come to shows. And um, all of my socials are Allison Elena music, which Allison has one L and Elena's with an E um, and that's Facebook and Instagram and now getting into TikTok and all that jazz. So they're all, all there. And I would love to meet you guys and talk. So hope to meet you. Keep an eye on it. She's going to be going big on TikTok anytime now. So we're on it. <laughs> Well, Allison, thank you so much. And Jesse, thank you guys so much for taking the time to to spend with us here this evening on Fast Line Fast Track. I hope you guys come back and join us again anytime you have new music to share. Thank you so much for having us. And we want to thank you so much for joining us this week. And we want to send a special shout out to our musical sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. It's springtime on Lower Broadway and the perfect time to take in some tunes at one of the nearby establishments like Robert's Western World, then drop in to buy some new tunes at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop. They've got a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise. And if they don't have it, I know they'll find it for you. So stop by and say hi and tell them you heard it on Fast Line Fast Track. Well, have you had the opportunity to check out the all-new FastLine.com yet? If you're in the market for any type of farm equipment or heavy construction equipment, head on over to FastLine.com and check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. Again, that's FastLine.com. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for the print catalog for your state or region. It's still being delivered directly to your door, and it's still a favorite resource of farmers and ranchers across this great country. Well, it's time for us to get on out of here. So until next time it's brent adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend you've been listening to fast line fast track presented by fast line media group to learn more about fast line's customer focused marketing solutions visit fastlinemediagroup.com and check out our brand websites fastline.com bigag.com and pinktractor.com if you have topic suggestions for future podcasts drop us a line at brent.adams at fastline.com